Well, good morning. Um, I am really excited to get to share the word with you today, um, especially in this Advent season where a lot of us feel like we need to be way more spiritual than we actually are. I mean, I think a lot of us during this season actually experience a lot of doubt, and that's going to be up there the whole time, so it's like, what are we talking about? That is what we're talking about. And we're going to do that through talking about one of my favorite people in Scripture. But doubt is strange, right? Because the Gospels are full of stories of doubt. And for me, I would think, if you were trying to be super convincing about who Jesus was as a person, you were trying to make your point incredibly clear, then why would you include verses like Matthew 28, 17, that says that after Jesus was resurrected, they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I'm like, Matthew, that doesn't actually sound very convincing to me. You're really not making your point very well. But it turns out that the scriptures don't avoid doubt in the same way that we do, and they don't feel the need to be as certain as we do. Right, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tim touched on doubt in one of his talks, saying that doubt means that our faith has a pulse. And I love that because that not only means that we have an authentic experience of faith, but we also can say that God is mysterious and that we don't get to, need to, or have to understand everything in order to be followers of Jesus or people exploring God together. Right, Tim also mentioned the story of Thomas, um, so unfairly named the doubter. And we're not going to talk about him today because I want to give Thomas a break. Jesus was freaking dead. Jesus was dead, and we're like, Thomas, why didn't you get it? I don't think any of us would either. So if you're going to call Thomas Doubting Thomas, I'm going to be Doubting Brandy, you're going to be Doubting Tim, or we're going to have Doubting Emma up here too. So let's just be clear that none of us are too fancy for this. But to understand the person that we're going to talk about today and his experience of the doubt, I want you to imagine a person who is all in. When I think of people that are all in, I get a little bit queasy and uncomfortable, and you, if you're not queasy and uncomfortable, you're probably that person. But the person who does everything all the way, who takes everything to an extreme and whose life might make you a little uncomfortable because they seem so naive in what they do because they do everything to the fullest. When I think about people in my life that are all in, I think about my sister Dusty when I was 18. She's been intense for my whole life. But she hit a particular kind of intensity when she decided that she no longer wanted to be a slave to consumer culture and she decided to become a minimalist. Now, minimalism sounds nice because we all are taught now to love minimalist art, minimalist culture, right? We walk into a coffee shop and the less furniture and the less decoration it has, the more hip and fancy that it is. But that's not what I'm talking about. Minimalism for my sister and her family meant that they each owned, this is my sister, her husband, and her baby, 100 items apiece. And now, this is in stark contrast. A lot of us are like, maybe I don't own that much. The average person owns over 1,000 items, or substantially more. Right, this, was not, this was including but not limited to furniture, dishes, clothing, toiletries, everything that they had was 100 items apiece. And I thought she was crazy. She owned so little that her house looked like when you have no job or friends in the Sims game. <laughs> and she had this conviction, but she wouldn't be persuaded out of it. And the next thing I knew, she was not only being a minimalist, but she was giving away what seemed like everything. I thought she was a lunatic, that she was overzealous, that she was too committed and too naive. And honestly, part of this is selfish, right? Because her minimalism made me uncomfortable. She had horrible furniture. She could have like four people over to her house at a time. And her lifestyle and her commitment made me really, really uncomfortable. In the scriptures, John the baptizer probably would have been seen in a similar way. Right? He was a guy who, when he stepped on the scene, he was all in. He started out as a messenger preparing the people for the Messiah, right? Jesus was coming and he wanted them to be ready. 
but he did this by baptizing Jewish people into their own faith and by calling out people's sin and nonsense both on an individual and a corporate level in public. Most of us are so defensive that we can barely handle a one-on-one -on -one interaction, let alone what John was doing. Right? The Jewish people knew John as a guy who was all in. He was leading with the intensity of someone who knows deeply why he's doing what he's doing and how to do it. He was loud, committed, passionate, embarrassingly eclectic, he had horrible fashion, and he was clear about why he was there. He let the people know that the Messiah was coming and that they needed to be ready. Again, to say that he was zealous would be an understatement. His opening bid to the people was, quote, repent and be baptized, you brood of vipers, the Messiah is coming. <laughs> Not exactly how I'm trying to win you over in a sermon this morning. But his entire life hinged on the person and the way of Jesus. Right, between inviting the people to be baptized into their own faith, to calling out every level of Jewish leadership and political leadership, John made it known that people being ready was his primary, primary priority. But it's really easy to call things out or to be all in when there's low risk. But for John, the risk was high. Right? He went to the king calling out his economic exploitation, his incredibly sexually twisty behavior, and he called his entire marriage a fraud. This runs a really different risk. Right, the risk for John in getting people ready was that he ended up in prison, and eventually he dies for this thing, right? He dies getting people ready to engage with Jesus. Because after calling out Herod, the primary ruler of the region, John is doing his job, right? He's doing his job, and he's doing it well, and I think a lot of us get really defensive when we feel like we should succeed and things should feel really good, but John doesn't have that experience. Because at this point, he is in prison where we enter the text today. See, I imagine that John's expectations of Jesus are not being met. As he gets ready to prepare the way for the Messiah, I don't think prison is the place that he was really dreaming that he would be. And if this were a movie of side-by-sides of John the baptizer and Jesus, it would look a little something like a single frame of John sitting in prison day after day after day, bored and hungry, confused, dirty, and frustrated. And in another frame, you'd have Jesus walking around, going to parties, growing in popularity, being interrupted by sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, all in public as he becomes a famous teacher. This is not what John expected. And it's at this point that we jump into our text for today, which may be obscure um, to some of us, because a lot of us skip over parts of scripture that maybe seem boring or irrelevant, but I think that John has something to teach us today. So the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. Jesus had just done a bunch of healing and resurrection. Uh, so John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? I love that they like, get the exact wording of that, that, Jesus told, that John tells them one thing and they repeat it verbatim. But this totally bothers me. This bothers me because John is a guy who's given his entire life for Jesus. He's sitting in prison, and John isn't actually sure about who Jesus is. Right, this should be a little confusing for us, because John has been teaching and preaching, he's been doing good work, and he's been paying real consequences for following Jesus and for getting the people ready. And he's essentially asking, are you the guy? Right, his entire career hinges on this person of the Messiah, and he isn't even sure about it as he sits in prison. John is experiencing doubt. And I think for some of us, it's hard to humanize people in Scripture, because we assume that because people had proximity to Jesus, that they were with him or knew him, that they would be good and that they would get it, and because they would get it, that we should just believe harder and do better. 
But Jesus rarely invites us to that kind of posture. Right? The scriptures aren't afraid that John doubts. But the guy who is telling everyone who Jesus is is asking a genuine question. He's not shying away from his doubt like some of us do. Right? Luke's readers, the gospel writer, um, right, of this biography of Jesus, is basically trying to help his people, too, to engage with their own doubt, because they're probably asking the same question that Jesus is. Did this Messiah isn't who we expected him to be. He doesn't look like what, he, what we thought he would, so is it even him? And we are no different. I'm going to keep pulling it back to us, right? Having grown up with certain ideas of who Jesus is, when we see God move in a way that we disagree with, or don't understand, or don't like, or things don't go the way that we expected, especially when we're feeling pious, that we get a little bit frustrated. And that's fair. But I think oftentimes what happens is that when the result of our, dis our unmet expectations is doubt, uh, that we tend to avoid them because we hate tension in our lives. Right? We all have questions and places of doubt. Whether it's about really basic, at least it's not a basic thing, whether God is real, um, or whether the afterlife is a thing, whether science and faith are compatible, whether God cares about every part of our identity, if our families will ever be healed, um, if God is present in suffering, right? We have tons of questions and tons of doubts that come up on a regular basis, and those are all fair. I just want to name the normalcy of our doubts. And John here is asking a question much like ours to try to get to the heart of what for him is an incredibly important life question. Jesus, are you the one to come, or have I spent my entire life as a fraud? Right? This is his career and his entire life that are on the line. And if you were not to read any farther, what would you expect Jesus to say? Because I would anticipate and maybe feel entitled on John's behalf to a very simple yes or no answer, which is what many of us want in our questions of doubt that we have. Not so with Jesus. Let's look at how he responds. He had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them, and blesses anyone who takes no offense at me. Jesus isn't afraid of John's question, and he gives an answer. And I love this because some of us need to know that like John's question, Jesus isn't afraid of or doesn't stray away from our questions, but is willing to engage them. What I don't love here is the ambiguity. Jesus tells the messengers to go back to their teacher and tell him a list. They ask, are you the guy? And Jesus responds with a list. He says, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are healed, the deaf hear, resurrection is a thing, casually, and the poor are brought good news. See, this isn't the answer that they were looking for. And I can only imagine their level of anxiety in going back to John with no clear answer and just a list. I'm like, come on, Jesus, couldn't you have given them like a, the dead are raised? Like, shouldn't they get something to be a little bit more clear? Jesus could have been more clear here. A yes or no really would have sufficed. So let's look at why Jesus responds in this way, because it is peculiar. But to do that, we need to look at how, what John would have expected of the Messiah that would land him in such a significant and substantial place of doubt. See, in the Jewish worldview, the Messiah was the person who would come and save Israel from the oppression they were experiencing from their political and religious enemies. Right? The Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow all of those forces and powers and to re return the Jews to their glory days. Right? They were supposed to be on top. They wanted to be on top. And this was because, fairly, they believed that they were the chosen people. They expected this to be violent, they expected it to be Israel-centric, and it would be clear to everyone around them that God was moving on their behalf. And all of this would be because the people were ready for God. 
right? John wanted this day to come and had quite effectively done his job in preparing the people. He was right about Jesus being the Messiah and had gotten the people ready. And if we know anything about the book of Luke, it is clear why John might be a bit confused if this was his image. Right, instead of coming in loud and triumphant like a powerful or violent king, Jesus shows up as a baby. This is not what they were expecting. And not only does he show up as a baby, he lies low for 30 years and has a three-year ministry, right? I think for some of us, we need to know that God's timeline is often not what ours is and that it's okay to be frustrated about that, though it doesn't change the reality of it. Um, Right, instead of being exclusively about the Jewish people, Jesus is about their oppressors. He invites them in and invites them to be at the center of the story as well. And he's spending all of his time, like I said before, with tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, and the poor. Right, instead of being all about them, Jesus is all about everybody else. This was not the Messiah that John was taught about, nor the one that he believed in. When Jesus doesn't meet his expectations, he moves into doubt, doubt and Jesus meets that doubt with a list a list of things that he's done. And again, I can only imagine the frustration and anxiety of the messengers having to go back to John with this very unclear message for them. Let's move on in the story. Once John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. Jesus doesn't usually stop when we want him to. Let's just note that. And Jesus now turns it back onto the crowd who's watching this entire thing happen. Right? These people are there as a result of John's ministry and are following Jesus because they've heard from John about Jesus being the Messiah and they believe him. And he basically turns to them and says, hey, y'all seem pretty quiet about your own unmet expectations of both John and who I am. John came to Jesus expecting particular things that led him to confusion about who Jesus was when the reality didn't connect. And again, while it would be easy to let the crowds off without having to engage with their own issues, doubt, and expectations, Jesus goes in. And I imagine for the crowd that it has to mess with your brain a little bit, right? This guy who is all in, who seemed to have no doubt, is now a person whose doubt is on full display in front of the crowds, right? This is like if your spiritual hero or spiritual mentor starts to have a crisis of faith in public. This would make us all a little bit uncomfortable. And in this place of seeing John's doubt on full display, Jesus holds up a mirror to their own expectations using what to us feel like really obscure allusions to things in their culture that would make a lot of sense to them. So to understand what he's saying, we'll have to do a little bit of context work. Um, I want to nerd out about this stuff with you this morning. So if we were to pull out a quarter or uh, a dollar bill, there's a bunch of images and iconography on those things, right? Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us. Like if I asked you all to draw a dollar bill, like both sides of it, it would probably be really, really sad for all of us to realize how little we know about the thing that's in our hands or in our pockets or in our wallets all the time. Right, this thing has, these things have images and messages and ideas that hold meaning. But for us, we've lost that because we don't get our political messages or ideology from our money. But in the Near East, in the ancient Near East, right, money was a primary form of political capital. It was a way that as you embedded images onto money that you could tell people what you were about and what you were like. So in Jesus' time, uh, there was this image that was put on the coins by Herod, who was a tyrannical, egocentric leader um, in the region of his day. Um, and he got to choose the symbol that represented what he wanted things to be about. Um, so this is an image of what that would have looked like. That's a reed blowing in the wind, right? They don't have as sophisticated of coins as we do, so it's not very pretty. Um, but right, this Galilean reed represented fertility and beauty, economic freedom, and high praise, right, for, for Herod. So when Jesus says this, this sentence, 
about searching for a reed swaying in the wind. He's making a direct reference to Herod, this terrible leader who's been exploiting the people. Jesus is essentially asking the people, were you looking for a Messiah that is like Herod, who's violent and exploitive, who's glamorous and exclusive? Were you looking for the type of leader that was going to wear high fashion and live in a fancy palace? Well, you were looking in the wrong place. High fashion belongs in royal places, but the guy preparing the way for the Messiah and the Messiah himself aren't like that at all. And right, I think just for us as an aside, it's totally natural for us to try to make our leaders look like Jesus when rarely that is the case, and Jesus is putting a stop in that right here. And then he continues, because Jesus doesn't stop when we want him to, again. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Right, John wasn't just a normal guy or a guy, a nor- like a guy in power or a prophet. He's more than a prophet. He's the prophet. He's known as the, the most prominent prophet in scripture. But they didn't get it. They missed it because it wasn't what they expected. See, doubt creeps or rams its way into our lives when the expectations that we set up are unmet or make us incredibly uncomfortable. It's what happened then and it happens to us now. Right, their culture set them up to view power and prophets and messiahs as a certain thing. But it made it so that it was almost impossible for them to engage with the actual Jesus and the actual John as a prophet when those expectations weren't met. But Jesus continues, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now Jesus doesn't praise people very often, and this is some high praise. Jesus tells the crowd that John is the ultimate in prophets, and if they went to find one, they did. And John was totally right about who Jesus was. He had it. He nailed it. He knew what he was doing and who he was announcing, even if he's experiencing doubt. But let's note that. John was right, and he was still not immune from doubt. He was right, and he still wasn't immune from doubt. Jesus was exactly who John said that he was, the Messiah, the one who comes to show humanity a better way to live, the best way to live, who brings life and healing to every place he went, and to fix up, fix the messed up stuff in the world. The problem was, for John, that because he, just because he knew something about Jesus, it didn't mean that he had the whole picture, or that anything was particularly clear for him. Right, because the Messiah wasn't who he thought he would be. Now for us, how many times do we interact with Jesus like this? We can say things about him or know who he is, but when he invites us to go do things, take risks, or does things in the world that we don't like or that don't make sense to us, we shut down, we capsize into doubt, and worse, we choose to overlook all of it, shake it off altogether, and live our lives as though they are without tension in our spiritual lives. So I hope, and I do, and this is true for me as a college pastor, uh, I want all of us to have a crisis of faith at some point, or a come-to-Jesus moment. Because I think that those moments are where we actually bring our raw and true selves and our real questions to Jesus, and Jesus then reveals himself to be really, really good. Right? We tend to think about conversion as this one-time thing that we do, but in the spirit of our Catholic brothers and sisters and family, um, I believe that our lives should be ones of constant conversion, where every, where every time that Jesus brings something to us or that we have a doubt, we move from our theology being held like this to opening our hands to have our lives be constantly converted. Right? We want to be people of constant conversion toward Jesus. Right, and I think that that is hard um, because it re- requires us to let go of control and being right, which are some of our favorite things. Right, and I think we often also have this really poor image of what our conversion or interactions with doubt will look like. 
Um, we think about these glorious moments where, like, the skies open and a voice comes down from heaven that's like, here's the answer to your question. And then we just, like, glow with the fire of a thousand fireflies because we look so great and spiritual. Um, but I think our come-to-Jesus moments actually just happen more in our places of messy and sad and frustrating doubt. See, for me, I came to know this not when I was first following Jesus, but when I first became a professional Christian. Let's just note that being professionally Christian is not super sexy. It just means that all of your failure and all of your doubt is on public display, much like it was for John and very much so like it was for me. So when I started ministry, I was hired to work as a campus minister at Reed College, one of Princeton Review's, quote, most godless schools in the nation. That's nice. And I had some Christian arrogance and went to Reed with the anticipation that I would see revival happen, that students would come to know Jesus, and that it would be the best because I was the best. Um, and I deeply knew that God had called me, that God was good, and that God was out for the transformation of students. All of those things were true, so I went. The thing is that when I stepped on campus at Reed, I wasn't met with the revival of the century, surprise. I wasn't met with conversions by the day, surprise. I wasn't met with a thriving chapter, and I wasn't even met with an existent Bible study. The bar went from, like, here to here incredibly quickly. My ego got me into the door of ministry, but God was doing something different and beyond my expectations. I had come to campus to train and develop a group of students to reach the campus, but a month in, my entire leaders team had capsized in a literal yelling fight across the table from each other in public at Camp Harlow, leaving me on a concrete bench at Camp Harlow crying, asking, is this really what I signed up for? Right, real doubt rose up in the midst of my unmet and let down expectations. And the rest of the year kind of followed and functioned at the crying on a bench alone level. Um, I couldn't retain a Bible study if I tried. Students actively avoided me on campus, which is probably more about me than it was about them, but I know that now and I didn't know that then. Um, and in a year where my primary goal was to develop a handful of students, I had completely destroyed, like, axe to the root the chapter, and there was nothing left. Literally every person that had been involved in the chapter had either left or been asked to leave by that point. Again, my high calling and my ego brought me into ministry, but there was something in me that was happening beneath the surface that was challenging who I knew God to be. And I finally started to ask real questions. Why did God call me here? Did God call me here? Is God really here, and if so, is God good? Is God present when I failed? Or maybe worse, did God set me up to fail? Probably. In that chaotic time, I was confronted not just with my own failure, but also with Jesus' character in the midst of my own character flaws. I had to decide every day as I failed whether I was going to get up and go to campus. And I did. I kept going back, but it wasn't because I was some humanitarian glory of a spiritual leader but it was because I didn't have anything else to do. So, so much for a triumphant narrative of belief. Um, and I would love to say that as I went back and was faithful that I was crazy successful, but by the end of the year, I had a total of three students returning, a guy who literally thought he was the only Christian at Reed, a socially inept high school senior, and a girl who only came to Bible study wearing a towel or a bathrobe and nothing else. My reality was really different than what I had expected. And I just continued to think, am I really called to do this? Even after I had done all of what seemed like the right stuff. And in that question, in that place of failure and my unmet expectations, God called me to look inwardly, to see the work that God had been doing in my life and in my failure, and the work that God was doing in students and read in spite of my failure. I expected that God would bring a ministry of flowers and roses and revival, but instead Jesus wanted to do a work in me, and he wanted to use my doubt. 
do it. And most of you are like me. You have doubt in some capacity of your life. And that's really good. For some of us, it may be the question of why bad things happen to good people. For others like me, it may be, why, if God invited me to do this thing, is it going so friggin' poorly? Some of us expected our life with Jesus to be easy and comfortable, and Jesus is inviting you into a risk and failure that doesn't feel very good. There are a million things that could cause doubt in our lives, and people like you and me and folks in the Bible were and are all wrestling with the same feelings and thoughts about it. So we have to understand that doubt is normal and a very real part of our lives with Jesus and a healthy part of it. And I just want to name that many of us have been taught that doubt is bad, right? I could name a list of 100 apologetics books I was supposed to read when I first became a Christian so that I wouldn't have doubt. But our questions of doubt don't disappoint God, they don't frustrate God, and God is not afraid of our questions, nor disappointing us for having them. Right, if the guy, John, who was the most important person in starting Jesus' ministry doubted, I think we should have a little bit of freedom to doubt ourselves. Because again, let's be honest, God is invisible and powerful and eternal and confusing and vast and mysterious. And if you have questions about Jesus, even if you've been following Jesus for a long time or maybe even your whole life, it's okay and good. Because I think that as Christians, we could do to have a deeper humility that continually lets Jesus reshape our lives and reform our theology and our way of Jesus. See, in this passage, we see that Jesus isn't afraid or doesn't avoid John's questions, but he engages with them. And he instead invites the community as a whole to take back to John good news and to engage with their own doubt as community. So that's what I want for us to do, right? So if doubt is normal, how should we respond? The main thing I think is that we need to engage with honesty. John was at least willing to bring his questions. I think a lot of us don't get answers because we don't ask questions, which is also a warning. If you don't want to hear from Jesus what Jesus has to say, don't ask because Jesus wants to speak to you. Right, many of us are maybe not even in touch with potentially all of the ways um, that we have questions for Jesus because we've repressed them so deeply. Right, scripture says that when we seek, we will find, and when we knock, the door will be opened. Um, doesn't mean that we're going to like what we find on the other side of the door. So let's name that. Right, some of us are too afraid or maybe lack the self-awareness or courage to ask Jesus or community our questions. I think community is one of the best places to have doubt and to bring our questions. It puts us all on a level playing field, right? And I think we could all use more honest processes with Jesus about how we're doing on a regular basis. So let's be people who engage with ourselves honestly. Secondly, I want us to focus on God's character and what God has already done. In this passage, we see much to some of our dismay that Jesus does not offer John an easy yes or no answer, but instead gives him a list of things that he's been doing. Jesus invites John to engage and to think. He doesn't just give him an answer. And we need to be people that ask questions that help us to understand God's character. Do we believe that God is good? How have we experienced it? What have we seen God do already? Because I think the answers to those questions actually ground us in our places of doubt so that we don't just flounder into spiritual no-person's land, right? Because um, I think for me, it's pretty easy to, when I don't ask questions, um, when I finally do, to spiral into like a tornado of doubts and feelings and not go anywhere with it. And with that, none of this is easy. So I want us to be people who do the work, engage and dig in, especially and even when there are no easy answers. Questions of doubt don't warrant easy answers, and it is in the process of searching that we actually find Jesus to be more abundantly near to us than we expect. So let's do the work, engage and dig in. And this fourth one is going to seem a little bit ridiculous, and I've heard this from the Sith Games before, so it's not going to be new to you, but do Jesus-y stuff. Do Jesus-y stuff. 
As people attempting to follow Jesus, we need to do what Jesus does in order to be grounded in his character and love and not just have an intellectual or hypothetical knowledge of him. We want to have an experiential knowledge that sinks into the deeper parts of who we are. It's why experiential learning is so big in schools, right? As we experience things, we come to know them to be true. Right? For some of us, that might mean reading scripture or being in prayer. For some of us, it might mean serving the poor or sharing our faith with our friends. Just pick something. Pick something in the scriptures and test them out and find them to be true. Because it is in practicing the words of Jesus that we do find them to be true. And I have found that nothing grounds me more effectively than trying out and doing Jesus' stuff in community. So as I finish up, I wanted to give us an invitation. It would be really easy for us to go at our doubt alone, to go buy a book or to listen to a sermon, but I want us to do doubt together. I want us to bring our real questions and the most vulnerable parts of who we are to each other in community, so one, that we can humanize each other, but two, so that we can experience Jesus more fully. Because I believe that as we doubt well in public in the way that John accidentally doubts well in public, that we actually give freedom for people, whether believing or non-believing, to experience doubt in a healthy way too. Let me pray for us. Uh, God who is living, we worship and adore you because you are good and you love us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not afraid of our doubt, but you invite us to enter into the mess of it all, to be with you in it, and to recognize that you are too big for us to assume that we understand. So would you humble us? Would you teach us? And would you help us to know you more deeply through our doubt? Amen. Well, friends, it's all been, it's been good to be here. Uh, have a good week. It's going to be cold, I think, but that's a thing. Um, so yeah, if you're a college-age student, come and talk to me. Man, good job. Love it.